maybe they, maybe we should have like a maybe we should have like a content warning at the trigger warning. Ooh, that's a little yeah. too. That's a pun though, isn't it? We can't call it a trigger warning. Oh sh- <laughs> a little too on the nose. It's a little too on the nose, yeah. Right off the top, content mm-hmm. warning. There is a this is a story in which a, a kid gets there's gun violence in this story. There's gun violence in this story. That's true. It's not super graphic. It is actually a really like tame It is, yeah. Uh it's a really somber moment in the story. But yeah. still a young like fifteen year old kid gets killed. So his life is stolen. Anyway. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um so yeah, that's true. That's, that's what we're just going to talk about here. All right, man. Seems like a, a good place to introduce the podcast. You want to go ahead and do that for us? This is called Some Story. It's a podcast where we read a story yeah. and we talk about the merits of that story right. and what makes it work or not work. Yeah. The story in, in question is called The Stone Boy. Um, By Gina Burial. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it's a story that showed up in the George Saunders Story Club newsletter. newsletter of- yes. And we're just starting out. So any way you can support us by following or rating the podcast five stars would really help. Um, so please consider that. So can we start off with a historians of history? Absolutely. So the year is 2006. Okay. George W. Bush has entered his second term as president. Mm -hmm. His second in command, his lieutenant, evil mastermind, Dick Cheney, the vice president, is on a hunting trip in Texas with two colleagues or with one friend and one Texas attorney whose last name is Whittington, who was 78 at the time. And they were hunting for doves, I believe. They fired into a covey of doves. A covey is... What is a covey of doves? It's like a murder of crows, a parliament of owls. <laughs> I learned uh, it's um, a, a papacy of cardinals. A papacy is it? Yeah, like of of the That's bird real. cardinal or of 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 papal cardinals of, car- of the bird cardinals. Okay. It's a it, you call it a papacy. Uh, interesting. A papacy of cardinals. Yeah. Imagine if you also called a whole bunch of like Catholic cardinals a papacy of cardinals. That would be pretty confusing, wouldn't it? That would be very confusing. (laughs) So they fire into a covey of doves Mm -hmm. while uh, Dick Cheney and his other friend were retrieving the doves from the, that they had killed. Mm -hmm. There was a sound behind the vice president that he thought was another dove that was getting away. He turned and he fired scattering birdshot into the face, chest and torso of Whittington, the 78-year-old attorney. Damn. It was called an accidental shooting. It was reported sometime later by the White House. There are conflicting reports about the time of the incident, the distance from which Dick Cheney fired upon this gentleman, the circumstances surrounding the incident, how much beer they'd had to drink. <laughs> yeah. But the point of this is, for our listeners today, it's okay. like we accidental shootings happen all the time. Dick Cheney did it mm-hmm. and made it made it okay. You know what I mean? People just like accidentally what shoot are you each saying? other. Nothing to be ashamed days. of. Nothing to be ashamed of these days. People don't even like <laughs> blink whenever you accidentally shoot somebody. 
but prior to 2006, accidental it was something shootings that was... happen. Okay. <laughs> prior to 2006, like when this story takes place, it was really, it was really bad to accidentally shoot yeah. somebody. Yeah. And now we're now we're okay with it. Times change. It's been normalized. <laughs> oh man. This has been Historians of History. H- Historians of History. Yeah, interesting. Uh, I, for- I forgot about the Dick Cheney shooting incident. Yeah. He lived. He's actually still alive. Man is 95 years young. <laughs> yeah. So he just wheeled around on some doves. And that's the story. <laughs> we don't Jesus. know what kind of dirt. We don't know what kind of dirt this Whittington guy had on. They called it a quail gate. David Letterman, quail I think, gate. called it quail gate. That's funny. Yeah. All right. So there was Historians of History. Yeah, we did the Historians of History. Right off the top. Right off the top. Let's do the logline version of the story. The movie. Go for it. The movie line. Okay, my logline version of the story is as follows. When a boy accidentally kills... Wait, should I do it in a movie, in like a movie voice? When a boy accidentally kills his brother in a hunting accident, the community wonders if he's a sociopath. And the boy isn't so sure himself. Wow, <laughs> that is very that's very movie. <laughs> yeah. You, okay, your turn. What? How? What was? What's your logline? You know, I did, honestly, I didn't even. I was. I had to think about the story so much, and like what it's trying to do. Yeah, I mean, I think what you what you said is is accurate, and I I agree with it. Okay. But um, last time you killed me on the logline, man. I had like a long rambling <laughs> logline, and you said like uh, your version was like four words. <laughs> And way better than mine. I, was like, I don't, you know, it's, I think it's like, it, it's almost, I loved the story. I love the story. The la- My first goose, I didn't love that story. Mm-hmm. And I think like I was able to sort of intellectually separate myself from it mm-hmm. and have a better, have a, like a clear picture of it or something. But this one I'm just like stuck in. I'm yeah, like, I love in, this story too. It's incredible. I can't get out of this story. Yeah. Do you want to go through, uh, quickly go through like the more detailed what happens version and then we can get to talking yeah. about what we loved about about it and what we learned from it? Yeah. Okay. So we open on an idyllic morning with two young men, Eugene, Eugene and Arnold. Arnold is nine and his older brother is 15. They're waking up in their uh, rural country home on this sort of farmstead. It's very pretty. It's a cool, crisp morning. They get up to go out uh, picking peas before breakfast. On their way, Arnold grabs his twenty-two caliber shotgun and some bullets. It's a rifle. And they also... Actually. Or a rifle, yeah. Uh, and a pan to go and grab to gather their peas in. On their way, they talk about the ducks that they might shoot. And they're crawling through a fence and the trigger of the gun catches on the fence, fires the weapon, and it shoots the older brother in the back of the head, killing him. And it comes out of nowhere. This is a story that it you're in this this like beautiful, pristine little place, mm-hmm. and then this shot happens mm-hmm. and I found myself really reeling and trying to I had to go back and see like did that is that what just happened? Mm-hmm. Did somebody just get shot? So Arnold kills Eugene totally accidentally. Instead of going and telling his parents immediately, he goes and picks peas and he's there for about an hour. And then he goes back home and he tells his parents that UG is dead and his parents run out and they go get him. It's not totally clear to me if they 
if they retrieve the body. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't think it's really, I don't think it surely says if I'm, if I remember. Yeah. yeah. There's not that detail, but so he comes back to the house. He tells his parents and his sister, Nora, who's a total nothing in this story. The middle sister who's totally forgotten. It tells his parents and Nora that Eugene is dead. They go to find him and Arnold goes to hide in the hayloft in the barn and people start showing up at the house. They then go to the sheriff in the town of Corinth, or if you're from Mississippi, like I am, Corinth, <laughs> which is nine miles away. <laughs> it's the ca- the county seat now, nine miles away. And they sit down with the sheriff. The sheriff asks asks him a few questions, uh, and they sort of determine the adults sort of determine that Arnold is in fact a sociopath, uh, and they're not going to do anything now. They're not going to press charges, but down the road he'll probably be in jail. Is the insinuation of the sheriff. Mm-hmm. Right. They go back home and uh, it's getting late and people are wrapping up their work at their various farmsteads and they come to uh, bring food and to sit with the family and be with the family and get, offer their condolences. And Arnold feels awful and terrible, but he's totally silent and he's as un- unobtrusive as he possibly can be. Everybody leaves and Arnold goes to bed he wakes up in the middle of the night and he goes to his mother's door. He's sort of at this point where he's processing everything that's happened and what he's done. And he's looking for some comfort and his mother turns him away. So he goes back to bed. He wakes up the next morning, comes down to breakfast. There's a cow who's gone missing. They think that she's gone up a hill to have a calf. That's usually been Yuji's job to go find the cow whenever it gets away. Arnold offers up that he will go and get the cow and he does and that's how the story ends Mm -hmm. yeah that's right you got it (laughs) (laughs) so i mean like the last time we talked about what is this story about right you asked me that question right so that's the plot what's the story about right um should i answer that question all adults are all adults are awful (laughs) adults are awful (laughs) children are precious uh, it's horrible to be a, a, a grown up in this world. Mm-hmm. They are totally jaded. We're jaded. We have no compassion. Wow. We only Whoa, Russell, want to. Russell, slow down, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's seriously. Okay. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. All right. Russell got his take. Um, nah, you go ahead. To me, it's about um, others assuming you're a certain way based on a mistake. Right. Um. Uh, and it's it's about the uh, uh, I think it's about a human tendency toward away from empathy. Like I think it's very easy not to be empathetic, and and it's convenient. You know, it makes you feel better sometimes to just assume that somebody's away. You know, instead of having to wrestle yeah. with like the complexity of something. And it's also about shame. I think this story. It's about all that. I think yeah. that's why I'm having such a hard time sort of summing it up is because there's so much there's so much packed into it. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot about shame. There's a lot about guilt. There's a lot about how you process that, how yeah. other people sort of f- want to shoehorn you into processing something the right way mm-hmm. or the wrong way. Yeah. Um, Did I ever tell you about uh, my my incident with booze in high school? No. Yeah. When I was I don't, uh, I don't know. when um, when I was in high school, I drank a little too much. I think I think I'd only had like alcohol one time before that my whole life, and. Uh, Drank too much um, with some guys. Wound up in the hospital, and it was like pretty serious. I was I was in I was in bad shape, but you know I I I'm fine now. But it was it was weird because you know I was drunk, right? And I don't remember what would have been I think a traumatic episode had I been able to remember it, right? So you know if you get in a car accident 
and you go to the emergency room, like that's a traumatic episode that you might have some PTSD over, let's say. But for me, I was, I don't remember it. So I remember waking up in the hospital and that was scary. But, um, but for my mom, it was, it was like very traumatic. For me, what was, what ended up being traumatic about it was going back to school and having this label of like being this, this kid who's got serious problems and is like a, a drinks and is like a, you know, like people, people put all of these labels on me because of this incident, right? When, when I actually think the incident itself was like fairly innocent, actually. And, and so I, living with that shame in high school was like really, really defined my experience in a lot of ways. And, um, mm-hmm. and so I could kind of like empathize with this character a lot because, because it's hard, you know, we do, th- and uh, you know, I think, I think it's happens to a lot of people. We do things that don't define us personally. Like I never thought that this incident defined who I was, you know, but for a lot of my peers and a lot of my teachers and stuff, I think that it did. And that was tough. Yes. The thing about other people putting a label on you, mm. uh, that doesn't, it, it's like, they, there's this thing that is so huge that it kind of can't help but attach onto you. Right. Mm. I think everybody's had a similar, a similar situation. I feel like even if it hasn't been to like such a huge extent. Yeah. I feel like it's a fairly normal experience, a human experience. Right. Like I'm not that guy. Mm. I'm not that kind of person, you know, Uh, even if it is like a choice that you made, like this story is so the, the inciting incident is so random, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's just a, it's just really bad luck yeah. that it happens to this kid. It's not a, it's not like he was pointing it at him and like trying to shoot over his shoulder or something. And then yeah. accidentally you know, really hit him. Yeah. There's no goofing around. It was just like, no, it was totally, yeah. totally random and totally, totally awful. I, since you shared your story, mine is, is way less sort of traumatic, I guess, <laughs> but I was, it was whenever grumpy old men came out yeah. the movie. Yeah. It had not been out long, and there was a there's a line in Grumpy Old Men where probably I tried to find the quote I couldn't find it where Walter Matthau says to Jack Lemon, "Where'd you go to school? F you!" And <laughs> and we were on this Beta Club trip, and it was me and uh, like all these kids that were in the Beta Club, and there was a, the Beta Club, <laughs> not the Alpha Club. What is the what is the Beta Club, man? Beta Club is like the smart kids club. Is it? It's okay. like you all A's. I think it's like all A's and B's, and then you go and you do stuff. I don't know. Beta, I don't know beta what it was. Activities. I was just in it. <laughs> so we're standing around, and there are some parents. So parents are like chaperoning us on this trip, mm-hmm. and uh, we were on a college campus somewhere, do at like a convention, and we were talking about like where are you going to go to school whenever you get older, and. And it's like, I'm gonna go to Mississippi State and mm-hmm. I'm gonna go to I'm gonna go to Texas Tech or whatever. And <laughs> my friend Blake Smith, who was like Great easy name, to make Blake Smith. Blake Smith. He was like easy to we just made fun of Blake. He because he took it. He's just well one of those guys. He, re- yeah. he reacted. Yeah. He reacted. Okay. You know? So I said, Oh, where are you gonna go, Blake? F you. And every parent turned around and looked at me like I had just like cut cussed out Jesus Christ himself Whoa. on the cross. You got him though, didn't you? I got, I got Blake Smith. It was worth it. It was worth it. <laughs> but Kenny Young's dad, Mr. Ken, turned around and he had he had been chew- he hadn't been smoking a cigar the whole trip. He had been chewing a cigar the whole trip. He's just like a colonel in the military, just like chewing a cigar. He was a mortician by trade. <laughs> uh, 
(laughs) But I remember him turning and looking at me and he had this like chewed up sloppy, soggy cigar. And it was just kind of like hanging off of his lip. Like you're the most disgusting person. He told you that? No, no, no. That Uh, was just the look that he gave me. Okay, okay. And I was just like, what? Like Walter Matthau made that joke. Like, this is an okay thing to say. I don't even think I knew, like, what it meant, you know? Yeah. Like, it was just a thing that Walter Matthau said. It's also it not funny, that bad. So I said, it's not that bad. But I remember my mom, like, grab, like taking me by the shoulders and, like, taking me around the corner, like, behind a bush, and, like, away from everybody and being like, you don't say that. Wow. You don't say that. Like, it was, the, it was so serious. That's funny. And it felt like a – it felt like I was – I was different somehow. <laughs> <laughs> You've been shamed, man. You're dirty now. Like you, you used to be a sweet, precious baby boy, yeah, and now you've, you're like you've covered yourself. You're in just filth. like us. I don't know why that stuck with me so much. Isn't that funny? I think yeah. yeah. I think these moments of shame can really like get in there, especially when you're yeah. uh, adolescent or something. Yeah, it'd be hard to shake. So the shame thing, uh, and kind of what we're talking about, like you're a kid. This thing is like defining you. You see mm-hmm. all these grown ups looking at you. Yeah. Uh, there's whenever uh, Arnold gets home with and he's with the family and the people are coming to visit and his uncle Andy, who's the biggest asshole mm-hmm. of this story, yeah. uh, is saying all this stuff about like what a, what a bad kid Arnold yeah. is basically. Uncle Andy, just if you for the listeners who haven't read the story and and we obviously recommend that you do, but Uncle Andy is kind of this guy who just he's like the most on the side of this kid is a sociopath. Um, of all of the adults in the story, he's just like, yeah, for sure, sociopath kind of, and he right, represents yeah. like that side of the, of the equation, if you will. The moment whenever Uncle Andy really lays into Arnold about how bad of a kid he is, and all the other adults are standing around, it's the moment in at the beginning of Home Alone when mm. Kevin discovers that there's not a cheat. Nobody ordered him an extra cheese piece. A piece of his extra cheese. Mm-hmm. Kevin is very upset. He's already been having a bad day. Everybody's trying to get ready to go on vacation. And everything that Kevin's doing is the wrong thing. And Buzz gives Kevin hell about something. And Kevin, like, punches him in the nose. And then that, like, causes this great big thing. (laughs) That, like, causes this big thing. Like, Pepsi spills on the passports and, uh, like... The pizza's ruined, dinner's ruined, everything's ruined, and every fa- every member of the family turns and looks at Kevin. And Uncle Frank looks at him, and he's like, look what you did, you little turd. Jeez. That's this, this like, the, the moment it. of Kevin sort of panning around and seeing yeah. everybody just giving him the stink and eye. That's Ar- that's, uh, yeah, that's Arnold at the, at, uh, at the sheriff's, isn't it? That's kind of how it feels, yeah. 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 And like Kevin is labeled as this bad kid, you know. Yeah. But he saves he the day. He kind of was a bad kid, though. Yeah, <laughs> it's misunderstood. I'm joking. Um. Instead of going, I think, in detail, scene by scene, like we did before, we maybe we could just talk about what we thought worked really well, or what we were impressed with as writers. Maybe you could talk a little bit about vividness and how she employs it. Oh uh, yeah, I will. Thank you. Great idea. So there's two points I want to make about vividness. The first is that just the amount of of detail, the amount of description versus action that takes place. For some reason, I was curious about this and I went through and I took two pages and I highlighted every one color was every action 
that took place, like a character doing something. And another color was for every like scene description, scenic description, let's say. Um, And sometimes a sentence would have both, but I tried my best to just parse them. And what I found was that it's almost 50-50. Like every paragraph, number one, every paragraph has, maybe not everyone, but almost every paragraph has an action. Like Like a character does something. It might be very, very small. Might be, you know, picking something up, but a character takes action every single paragraph. And then every single paragraph also has a description of of the world the natural world and if you take out like internal dialogue and you take out you know actual dialogue between characters it's like 50 50 action uh description which i thought was really interesting and it's really neat to see too like what you sent me yeah i say i sent russell a picture of it it's really it's it's really neat to see like how that breaks down it's very satisfying it was very satisfying to see that that balance Yeah. yeah as a writer it was almost comforting to see like oh okay so this is how you know, somebody I really respect literally is 50 50 and, um, and, and something action an action takes place in every paragraph. Like those are two things that I can take into my writer toolkit and, you know, and see how they feel, right. Try them on. Yeah. You know what I mean? Kind of feels like there's an equation or something. Yeah. Is it, it, you know? and, and I've, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like, a, it's almost I can like plug a, and play a little bit. Uh, yeah. I can use this right now and, uh, uh-huh. and see how it feels. Right. So that was, that was a cool observation. But the other thing yeah. is that the descriptions are all serve a purpose too. They're not just, I think we, I think in our last podcast, we talked about like, why is this important? You know, why is this, this sun important? Um, yes. And, and we, we, we were, important? Right, we, we were struck by the beauty of the language, but we did, we couldn't really, we didn't solve the question. You know, we didn't answer the question, why is this important? And I think in this story, yeah. it's much more clear why the different things are important. I'll give you an example. Yeah. First example, okay. I'll give you two examples. First example is this, is the gun, right? The, a character picks up a gun and we think Chekhov's gun, we think it's going to go off at some point. You got Chekhov's 22. Chekhov's 22. And it does, you know? So that's, that's not, that's not a surprise, but it, it also plays by the rules. But if you, if you read more carefully, where Eugene gets shot is also described earlier. So in her, in her description, uh, first description of Eugene, or there's a just early description, I say, I don't think it's the first one, where you want to read it for us? Oh, I will. The one about I, the, I love this. the hair. In the first, in the first two pages of the story, a approximately 25% is spent on his hair. There's a lot of stuff that she uses so well mm-hmm. uh, that nothing is nothing's out of place. Nothing is extra. Yeah, everything is. It's just so efficient and it's, so economical. Yeah, it's super efficient. And she describes it's something so cool. in in one way early on that seems inconsequential, but that object or that that thing that she describes becomes, yes. you know, like essential to the story later. Yuji, Yuji came clumping down the stairs and into the kitchen, his head drooping with sleepiness. This is the nine-year-old boy. From his perch on the stool, Arnold watched Yuji slip on his green knit cap. Yuji really didn't need a cap. He hadn't had a haircut in a long time, and his brown curls grew thick and matted, close around his ears and down his neck, tapering there to a small whorl. Yuji pressed his left hand through his hair before he set his cap down with his right. The very way he slipped his cap on was an announcement of his status. Almost everything he did was a reminder that he was eldest. First he, then Nora, then Arnold, and called attention to how tall he was, almost as tall as his father, how long his legs were, how small he was in the hips, and what a neat dip above his buttocks his thick-soled logger's boots gave him. Arnold never tired of watching Yuji offer silent praise unto himself. 
He wondered as he sat enthralled if when he got to be Yuji's age, he would still be undersized and his hair still straight. I love him, man. Yeah, that's great. It's a great I description. I love him. Yeah. I love that like, he's like... The hero worship of the younger brother is is so good. Oh, man, I'm an only child and I had... Uh, my cousin Ben was five years older than me. He still is, as a matter of fact. Still is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I just, I would like worship the ground yeah. that he walked on. I like, I would sneak in his room. Like he, he wore deodorant, you know, cause when I was like nine and he was 14 and he mm. was wearing deodorant and I wasn't, I remember like getting his deodorant and putting some on and like his cologne or whatever yeah. and putting it on like, and he was at school <laughs> and my mom being like, what is that smell? <laughs> Cause he put on way too much. Probably. Yeah. 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 Ah, man, it's such a, it's so, it's so sweet. And I feel mm. like she does such a, a neat job of like putting us in Yuji's head. Yeah. And that, that, that reverence she's got for him is just so, it's just so sweet. It's sweet. It's, it's so sweet. sweet. Yeah. But then also there's the hair. And I do re- recall my first read right. of this thinking like, wow, this is a really, this is a really detailed description of, of hair. Mm-hmm. And I, I, yeah. I honestly was like, huh, weird. What, you know? <laughs> and um, one, one page, two pages later, Arnold shoots his brother in the head. Accidentally. Uh, let me read that passage. Arnold pressed down the bottom wire and thrust his leg through. They're going through like a chicken wire fence, like a cow pasture type deal. Arnold pressed down the bottom wire, thrust a leg through, and leaned forward to bring the other leg after. His rifle caught on the wire and he jerked at it. The air was rocked by the sound of a shot. Feeling foolish, he lifted his face, bearing it to an expected shower of derision from his brother. But Yuji didn't turn around. Instead, from his crouching position, he fell to his knees and then pitched forward onto his face. The, the ducks rose up, crying from the lake, cleared the mountain background, and beat away north across the pale sky. Arnold squatted beside his brother. Yuji seemed to be climbing the earth, as if the earth ran up and down. And when he found a... Jesus. Yeah, it's so good. Arnold squatted beside his brother. Yuji seemed to be climbing the earth, as if the earth ran up and down. And when he found he couldn't scale it, he lay still. Yuji? Then Arnold saw it, under the tendril of hair at the nape of the neck, uh, a slow rising of bright blood. It had an obnoxious movement, like that of a parasite. Oof. Yeah. Oof. So amazing. First of all, just remember what I said about action and description. It's all there, right? The ducks, and she she kind of like goes between what's happening with the boys and like what's happening in the scenery, which is really interesting. But then mm-hmm. the point that I think that I'm trying to make here is that she basically described, she set up this this specific moment two pages earlier when she described the brother's hair in a totally different context. But, but when he does get shot in the, in the head, we know exactly where he's been shot, you know, and, and we can see it because it's already, it's been done already, you know, not only can we see it, but we like, there's so much in, there's so much in that hair. Like it Mm -hmm. carries, it carries so much weight, not just visually, but also like emotionally. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Ugh, I'm just I'm gutted, man. I'm gutted like, too. Yeah, it's, and the descriptions are it, so beautiful, like the ducks rising and like the the way that he's climbing, like yeah, this, climbing the earth. There's this sort of like it's amazing. It feels like the whole world is like turned on its side, yeah. and it's just such a pitiful movement that he's doing. It's just helpless. It's, it's terrible. Yeah, it's so and it's still so pleasant, and I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh God, am I the sociopath? That's Oof. what it is. There we go. That's what she's done. The podcast That's what she did. featuring the sociopath. Yeah. Here we are. Um, yeah. So, so that's cool. You know, that's like a, that, that's, I think that's a really, 
excellent use of description, not because it's beautiful, although it is, but because it actually does something for the story in a, in a non-trivial way, you know? So in that, like, right after that is where he gets up, instead of going to his parents, he's, he grabs his pail and he starts picking peas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he kind of just goes Go into on. autopilot and... He does. Carries out the we don't planet, get any. You know? We don't get any sort of interior monologue. Yeah, it's like they were going to pick peas, and he's picking peas. Yeah, this. Yeah, this is what we're supposed to do. Yeah, there's a description at the beginning, kind of just going along with with your point about the vividness here. There's a description of the sign. It's a lot briefer than I thought it was in my first read, but in order for the sign to hit this homestead. Uh, it has to climb up over a mountain. So it, it's kind of, it, the sun doesn't hit the, the farm until later in the morning. And just having that little bit of a description comes into play here. Do so you want to read that? It was, it was a, a warmth on his back, like a large hand laid firmly there that made him raise his head. Way up the slope, the gray farmhouse was struck by the sun. While his head had been bent, the land had grown bright around him. So that's the the description of the rising sun. What I think is cool about that, and this is something that I've struggled with in my own fiction, is how to narrate a change of of thought, specifically coming back from flashbacks or coming back from daydreams of a character. Mm-hmm. How do you deftly like return to the scene instead of? Oh yeah, it's something that I just am, I'm always a little bit insecure about when I when I, it comes time for me to do something like that and i think she nails it right there you know this mm-hmm. the it's it's the a ch- there's a change in the in the setting that causes him to sort of return to his senses man yeah i hadn't thought about that that's really good what a great observation brian <laughs> thanks man you know sometimes when i encounter a move for lack of a better term or a technique or something that a writer uses that that works really well i try and figure out like what the worst writer would do and i think this is something that, that saunders <laughs> talks about in his in his book or on on the thing and i think you know here you could have you, you the worst writer would have said he snapped out of it you know that eventually yeah. he snapped out of it and went back to the house you know but this is so much better even, at- i think the medium writer <laughs> the medium the, the worst writer would say he snapped out of it that's right the medium level writer would say the sun rose over the hill and shined on his back and, and snapped him out of it or how, yeah. whatever. But because we've already, we know that we know that it's early morning. We know that there's this mountain. It just makes more sense. Mm-hmm. It's so much more believable that the sun yeah. is, is pulling him out of this because we know that it's inevitable that it's going to rise above that mountain. It does. Yeah. It the is, world yeah. is the world. It's this like, but uh, it's like a closed system. Like everything in it is yeah, that's a good is, yeah is yeah. necessary. It's like having a and really has a, it's like having one of those um one of those fish tanks where like it's like sea monkeys. Yeah, sea monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> it's like sea monkeys. That's right. It's just like sea monkeys, man. God, sea monkeys. It's what a thing. Like, I, you just reminded um, me, this is apropos of nothing, but when I was a little kid, my brother and I went into business briefly raising guppies. Did I tell you about this ever? Oh, yeah? yeah. You know, uh-huh. you could go to the pet store and get a guppy for like 10 cents a guppy. And we were uh-huh. like, oof, these guppies lay lots of eggs and you can raise up a, a family of guppies like pretty quick. 
and we, mm-hmm. you know, we did some like third grade math, and we were like, we're gonna be rich, and we, <laughs> and we got, we got all of these. Uh, we got, we basically went to the kitchen. We got a few guppies, um, and we went to the kitchen and filled up all of the glasses that we could find. You know, uh, water glasses. And started raising up our guppies. And my dad came home and he's like, what in the hell are you <laughs> He's like, let me give you a lesson in, in you know, economy of scale or something. Uh-huh. But, uh, yeah, uh, that's, that's pretty funny. funny to think about. Anyway. Can I say one more thing about this kind of the detail stuff? Sure. And we can, you can keep it or... Of course. Take it or leave it. Do it. Um, There's... I th- all this mirroring, mirroring or like setting up, whatever we want to call it mm. here at the here at the beginning, uh, happens a lot in the, in this first act of the story, it does. and it kind of goes away after that. There's a little bit of it that we can talk about, but yeah, you're right. Uh, one thing also is at the beginning it talks about the uh, we at the beginning we see Yuji watching Arnold sleep, or we see Arnold watching Yuji sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he eventually wakes up and he has a big wing of it's described yeah, he as, tackles uh, him into the covers sort of. And yeah, it's, so, it's such a sweet little thing. Yeah. But he's like watching him and he knows he knows that he has an unfair advantage over his big brother. Mm-hmm. Like I'm about to jump on this like sleeping dude, catch him unaware. Uh, after he shoots him. Hey, Yuji, he said again. He was feeling the same discomfort he had felt when he had watched Yuji sleeping. His brother didn't know that he was lying face down in the pasture. Yeah. Yeah, that was set up too. Yeah. All of it's set up. All yeah. of it's, it's, yeah. It's, so, it's really cool. Yeah, I wonder, yeah, really cool. it makes me want to go back through this story I'm writing now. And once I get it to a certain stage, right, where all of the, where I know where it turns and stuff. And I, I can go back and try and work on adding depth and stuff and just say, okay, this is the moment, you know, take a, take a second and, and be aware and say, this is the moment where this is the inciting incident. Like, how can I set that up? You know, instead of just describing a room for the sake of describing the room and adding vividness, like how can I, you know, create a, create an atmosphere that will, that will further empower the inciting incident or further empower whatever happens later, you know? Yeah, I think that is a good like it, it's it's something that I think has to come later in the writing process. Mm-hmm. It, it comes in the the editing process where you look back at these things and like each each and every detail does it need to be here? And yeah. if not, we either need to cut it or we need to use it in a way that that brings in that significance. Yeah. Yeah. I get excited when I talk about this kind of stuff because Yeah. Because honestly like it's not something that I I paid enough uh, that much attention to or or thought about in this way before I read this story like five times and started me to, either man started to see this stuff and it's very exciting yeah it makes me want to and the, st- turn this podcast off and work on my stuff <laughs> 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 don't do that listener yeah listen to the- I don't know that I've ever had <laughs> hold the phone wait wait wait, oh, yeah. wait wait don't forget to like and subscribe <laughs> okay <laughs> uh yeah I don't know if I've had a story that these moves are so they're so apparent. I can see them so clearly, but it, it doesn't take me out of Mm-mm. the reading of it. No. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like sometimes you can see a move a writer makes and it's like, you're tricking me mm-hmm. or something. Or it's like, you're doing Maybe. a move, you know, you're doing a move. Yeah. yeah. But this is just like, <laughs> it just works so well. Masterful. It's kind of like if there's like a, it's like, when the the like scary music comes in in a in a scary movie, mm. and you're like, oh, 
bad guy. Bad guys around the corner. That's a move. That's a move that like. That's ham fisted. That's yeah. that's the medium writer at work. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. In the last podcast, we talked about our narrator, and we're kept we're kept out of his head mm-hmm. for pretty much the whole time. There's like a couple of moments where he he sees like the smoke in the distance, and it reminds him of home. And uh, but we we just don't we never get that sort of interior uh, monologue. And with this story, we get a little bit at the beginning. We see what he sees whenever Yuji is putting on his hat. We see what he sees whenever he is sleeping in the bed. After he shoots him, we get a really limited view of his interior life. So it's all he is an autopilot. He's just kind of like going through the motions. He's picking peas. He comes inside. He gets in the car with his dad and Uncle Andy to go see the sheriff. And there's a lot of... I don't know what we're supposed to assume that there's like a lot of processing going on mm-hmm. inside of, of his head. Um, but I think one thing that she does really well is to, uh, which he does give us his perspective and we kind of get it more and more. It's almost like he's coming out of shock and we're kind of opening up. She's opening him up to us mm-hmm. more and more as the story goes along until we finally get to the end. And we see pretty clearly what his, uh, what his thought process is. Mm-hmm. But this line, whenever they first get to the sheriff, uh, the sheriff asks, the sheriff says, that's bad. Like you shot your brother. That's bad. Yeah. Thanks. Were sheriff. you and your brother? Good. F- <laughs> yeah. Were you and your brother? Good friends. What did he mean? Good friends. Yuji was his brother. That was different from a friend. A best friend was your own age, but Yuji was almost a man. Yuji had a way of looking at him, slyly and mockingly and yet confidently, that had summed up how they both felt about being brothers. Arnold had wanted to be with Yuji more than with anybody else, but he couldn't say they had been good friends. (laughs) When you're a kid, you don't have the language, you don't have the experience, you don't have the vocabulary to put around certain things. Mm. Um, I mean, even as an adult, what you, would you call your, would you call Mike your best friend or would you call him a good friend? You know, Mike, Mike being my brother. No, not until right. we were adults would I, would I have called him a friend, you know? Yeah. But it's I mean, like, even there's... though we were, we were friends, you know, we played together all the time. We did stuff together all the time. Like, but, but yeah. I would never have said he's my, but it's like, he's friend, like my friend. Friends are yeah. people that you choose. Friends are people that you yeah. pick out that you go to school with and you do stuff with and you pick them. You pick each other. Yeah. You choose each other. Yeah. A brother is somebody that you are just. You're just there. It's just your brother. Just it's right. a biological. <laughs> they're there. Yeah. Uh, you don't really have a choice. Yeah, that's true. But there's something in there's like something in the middle that we don't really have. Mm-hmm. We don't really have a word for maybe, and she shows him. She shows this kid in this adult world trying to process adult terms. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of this story. It's yeah. like. Like you, like we were talking about earlier, people will put labels on you if you do this thing and you either like fight against it or mm-hmm. you accept the label or you try to, you know, do something. You have it. You have to choose yeah. what to do with it. Yeah. Um, so he's already in the spot where he's having to process just like being a child in an adult world, which is a hard enough thing. Mm-hmm. Grownups have re- really narrow definitions. They have really narrow expectations. 
of the world. We got jobs. We got to pay the rent. We yeah. got uh, aging parents to take care of. We need things. We need things to go smoothly. Yeah. And when things don't go smoothly, we get worked up and we do things that are bad and we're not able to empathize with our kids. I think one of the reasons that this story is so effective is that they're kind of like there's a spectrum of of adults, uh, the way I see it in the world. On one end, you've got the grown up who thinks kids should be neither seen nor heard. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Like don't really care about kids. They're just. They're just little people, Go but there they're, and not, be a kid. they're not important. Right. Go there and be a kid. Don't bother me. On the other end, you've got people who are like, every child is precious. Every baby is a sweet little boo-boo baby. Mm-hmm. And they're going to be a sweet little boo-boo baby until they get pubic hair or armpit hair or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> But even, with, even within those two – at those two poles, if you do – if you're a kid and you do something out of line – the person who doesn't usually think about kids or who just wants them to be a non-issue in their lives gets really upset because it's mm. like, oh, cool, you just killed your brother. Now we got to do something with you. Yeah. But if you're a parent, if you're the kind of person who thinks that everybody's a sweet little boo-boo baby, and all of a sudden you do this like horrible, I- irreparable thing, you've shattered like the expectations of adults that think yeah. children are precious and special and can do no wrong. Right. So, what? Arnold ends up doing is put he puts every adult in this awkward situation of what do we do with him? Mm-hmm. What do we do with this a nine year old who has you know committed manslaughter effectively? Yeah, how do you think she makes it? She does that so effectively. I guess we see it the most in the in, in Andy in Uncle Andy mm-hmm. who is um, well. I think we've got the two poles. We've got Uncle Andy, who he valued Yuji because Yuji was like he was a he was the kind of kid that he could hang out with. Yeah, they could do stuff. Yeah, she they could work on the very farm. Clearly, like why he prefers Yuji. Right. Yeah. Yuji was useful to Andy, and he right? looked like him. Yeah. Maybe we could read that for the audience real quick. This is when they go to visit the sheriff, right? Corinth, nine miles away, was the county seat. Arnold sat in the front seat of the old Ford between his father, who was driving, and Uncle Andy. No one spoke. Uncle Andy was his mother's brother, and he had a, he had been fond of Yuji because Yuji had resembled him. Andy had taken Yuji hunting and had given him a knife and a lot of things, and now Andy, his eyes narrowed, sat tall and stiff beside Arnold. So that's how we kind of know that Andy is not on Arnold's team here. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So one thing that that the the grown-ups all do in the story is they all they she when she describes them, she talks about their eyes a lot and their specific yeah. look. And and uh-huh. uh, um for example, like okay, I just read that section about Aunt, Uncle Andy and he has he narrows his eyes, right? So he's like kind of skeptical. Mm-hmm. But later, the sheriff looks a certain way and then Andy takes on the exact same look later so it's like it's like the the it, it's almost the effect is almost like um well it's like oh, your little arnold kid takes you know? on the look later uncle andy arnold takes on the same look later no uncle andy does he takes on the okay. look from well, but, the same look as the I'm, I'm trying to find it the same look as oh yeah 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 yeah, as the I sheriff. That. yeah. but also at the end arnold narrows his eyes at his he mother. does he does yeah that's true 
what the specifically though with the with the with the sheriff and Andy, you kind of sense it as like a child sort of child's pers- pers- from a child's perspective. You know, it's almost written as if like, oh, these these people are all they know something I don't like. They're making adult decisions or agreements somehow that the kids are not aware of, and I think that's really it, it. It works, you know, to focus on the the way that the adults are looking their eyes are looking is somehow very it's effective. just like whenever i was a kid and i said the f you thing yeah and kenny young's dad man yeah. it's just like you're a that that's the like you you're to be either neither seen nor heard mm. or you're precious and special and if you go outside of any if you go outside of those bounds if you do anything other than what a kid's supposed to be doing you're doing it wrong and we're going to look at you and you're going to feel bad about it yeah because you've ruined our expectations, you've ruined our day. Yeah, and yeah, and, and then he also he also talks about his dad's gaze. So Arnold gazes over his shoulder at his father when he's trying to when he's talking to the sheriff, um, expecting his father to have an answer um, for for whether or for like how it happened. Right, the sheriff asks him how it happened. Um, so expecting his father to have an answer for this also, but his father's eyes, larger and lighter blue than usual, were fixed upon him curiously. Um, so he kind of knows that what what I think I think what the the effect is with all of this eye business. Um, and later, his mom won't Here, won't look at him when when they're eating dinner and stuff. She's like cover. She like covers her eyes whenever they're at breakfast. Oh yeah, and so oh, here's uh, the line here, about the sheriff, right? Um, uh, Andy paused as he was getting into the front seat and gazed back at Arnold, and Arnold saw that his uncle's eyes had absorbed the knowingness from the sheriff's eyes. Andy and his father and the sheriff had discovered what made him go down into the garden. It was because he was cruel, the sheriff The sheriff had said, yeah. and didn't care about his brother. Arnold lowered his eyelids meekly against his uncle's stare. You're right, man. Yeah. It's like, I'm a kid. I, I'm like trusting these adults to do the right thing. Like that's that's all you can do whenever you're nine years old, mm. and what they're telling me is that I'm cruel and awful, and yeah, that's it. That's it. Like judgment has been cast. I think the point is that somehow, and and, and I'm not, I haven't, I haven't fully solved it, but somehow sh- the way that that th- the reason it's so effective is because it's told from the the character, the main character knows that he's unaware of exactly what's happening on the adult level and but he he doesn't you know what i'm saying so there's that that distance that's also really poorly yeah. articulated but but she keeps a she keeps a distance between his, the things that he knows he knows and the things that he knows he doesn't know to be rumsfeldian about it um it, well i think to kind of go maybe this can kind of help you talk about like the effectiveness of uh Almost the like adults versus kids, yeah. Narrative to the story, yeah. There's uh, the horrible Uncle Andy has a line. The sheriff, it's, this is whenever they're at the house and everybody's visiting. He's a reasonable fellow, Andy explained. That's what the sheriff said. It's us who ain't reasonable. If we'd have shot our brother, we'd come running back to the house crying like a baby. Well, we'd have been unreasonable. What would have been the use of acting like that? If your brother's shot dead, he's shot dead. What's the use of getting emotional about it? The thing to do is to go down to the garden and pick peas. Am I right? So like, yeah. Oh, hold on, hold on. 
And then she says, the men around the room shifted their heavy, satisfying weight of unreasonableness. Bunch of buttholes, <laughs> yeah, man. I love that line. <laughs> I do, too. Just like they're so reasonable, and they know it. They, that's the th- It's like all the grownups have this certainty about the world and about what's happened, mm-hmm. and that's just not true. They're standing on such shaky yeah. ground. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. Speaking and of they're kids. feeling a way about him that that you know he he doesn't feel about himself you know I don't I wish I I wish I could say something more profound about how she how she manages this but I'm not sure there's much to say except that she just really understood she just really got that dynamic that that the adults are going to speak adult to one another and that the the Arnold is is going to know that know that it's about him but not not fully understand you know and then he reacts to that, you know what I mean? Like he doesn't react to the specificness of the adults, but he reacts to the shame, you know. Hang on, say that again. Say try to say that. He again. doesn't react he doesn't, to the specific said- the specificness of the adults, like their specific critiques, you know. He doesn't react to the idea that he might be a sociopath. He doesn't react to this re- the reasonableness. Uh, the, their their kind of inside joke about reasonableness, the adults, the joke that the adults make, but he reacts to the shame, you know, like he knows that he's supposed to be ashamed, and he is ashamed, I think. Um, yeah. And so he's reacting to that emotion, but he's not reacting to like the specific charges from the adults. He's not doing the things the adults want him to do. So, what are you, what are you working on? Um, I'm still working on the same short story that I was working on last time, uh, in addition to various other projects. And I've got a a workable format of the short story down. I'm probably on like draft four or five of it. I feel like I know, I know what the, the beats of the story and what happens mechanically in, in terms of like, you know, the, the different pulses to use, to use Saunders' terms, um, but now I'm trying to go back and 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 add more meaning to it, right? Like I, I, all the actions are are there, but what is it that that can make it more profound? Specifically, I'm I'm working on cutting out things that don't need to be there, and uh, but also I'm I'm interested in trying to do some of this uh, the things we talked about in this story, you know, and 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 using description too. Cutting is always a good idea, but yeah, what you said it's like you cut a bunch of stuff out, but then this kind of Get, this gives me a new, um, like you said, a new tool for the the like editing toolkit, mm-hmm. where you can go in and yes, you can cut, but also what can you, what new can you bring to 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 bring some yeah, consequence and significance yeah. and depth to yeah. what details are there? Yeah. What about you, man? What are you working on? Um, I am putting some like finishing touches on a, a draft of a poetry manuscript oh, wow. actually cool. um it was when i was working in advertising i a way a sort of catharsis for me was to write uh what i called corporate verse yeah. which were basically corporate like how can i get through I how can i get through that. this day have i not sent you i haven't shared any i don't of these think you me? sent me your corporate verse i would I'll, love i'll send you I'll send you some. So I like, I hated advertising, copywriting stuff so much, but it paid the bills. 
and I would sit in my office and just be like twiddling my thumbs. And then I would just oh, like man. start free riding. I hated advertising. Yeah, it's awful. It's so, it's so soul-sucking. But I would do these like free writes and I would just go cr- – I would just like write the craziest stuff, just like the most obscure Cormac McCarthy words, like just not just nonsense, gobbledygook. But then I would get to the end of it and uh, I would put like a ta- the name of a company and like a tagline on the end of – on the end of one of the stories – or I would put the tagline on the end of the poem. Can I read you one real quick? I insist. Okay. And they're all titled with the um, their stock symbol. That's the title of each okay. poem. Is, they're like stock symbol. So this is PG1 for Procter & Gamble. Okay. So it's the parent company. That's what and it's called, the parent company? Procter and Gamble. No, no, no. This is the the the... the the, this is the parent company of the product that I will okay, tag okay, at the okay. end of it. Okay, here we go. Okay, so this is PG1 from Corporate Verse. In your dreams are villains taunting, buff Kurt bullies and ribald instructors of black maths, high priests and better mothers than you. This is surface. Ocean thunders whale song, seismic bellows of Mother Earth's architecture, churning mute tongues. If you could parse that godless language, could you cipher out freedom keys and coo along in slumber to your sprouting child relief? NyQuil kids, sweet dreams, sweet pea. <laughs> anyway, so That's I'm cool, like man. trying to, I'm trying to do like, I'm just trying to get it ready to, I've got a couple of places I'd like to send it. I like that. I like the uh, concept poems though. That's, I think, yeah, that's cool. It was I, I, I just, like, kept going. I've got, like, 70 of them. That's cool. All right, and this concludes episode two of the Some Story podcast. On behalf of my co-host, Russell Heen, I want to thank uh, you for listening. Um, once again, we're just starting out, so if you go ahead and follow us or rate us five stars, it would really help help us find our audience. Music for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. And it was mixed and edited by me, Brian Blickenstaff. Thanks so much, everybody.